0: Well, uh, thanks for coming. Um, if again, if you're you, you're new here, um, we are grateful that you have uh, chosen to worship with us today, and um, it's our uh, privilege and, and blessing that you uh, could be here uh, worshiping with, with us. <clears throat> Today is, um, if uh, you're not familiar with, uh, with church or with the uh, kind of church calendar, um, today marks a, a really special day. It's called Palm Sunday. Um, this is the beginning of, of Passion Week, which means that uh, a week from Palm Sunday is uh, Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday. When Easter, uh, when Easter rolls around, it's typically um, the time when uh, we begin thinking. Even outside the church, people begin talking about Jesus and about Christianity and about the church. You know, um, for some years, I don't know if they still do it now, but Time Magazine and Newsweek would put out articles right around Easter time to increase sales. Um, that asked things like, "Who is the historical Jesus?" or "Is Christianity still um, having an impact in America?" or "What is the role of Christianity in the world?" and and so right around Easter time, we would begin thinking about Jesus a little bit more, not only within the church, but outside of the walls of the church as well. And I think if you are kind of uh, in, the, uh, in, the, in the persuasion that, that likes to hear what goes on, you'll probably hear uh, in the past few years a certain idea, certain ideas about who Jesus is, certain ideas about Christianity that uh, say something like this. I was watching one of these man on the street videos. You see them all the time, right? Someone gets a video camera and they go around and interview people on college campuses or in shopping malls and places like that and asking, what is your perception of Jesus? Who is Jesus to you? And they would answer these questions. And then they would say, what do you think about Jesus' followers? What do you think about Christianity? What do you think about uh, the church? And one of the growing number, uh, one of the uh, most rapidly growing, uh, quote unquote, religious groups are the kinds of people that would consider themselves to be, this is what they say, quote-unquote, I am spiritual but not religious. Right? Why? And if you probe a little bit, you'll hear ideas like, I love Jesus, um, but it's his people that I don't like so much. I love Jesus, but I don't really like the church so much. I love Jesus, but I'm not much into organized religion. You hear these kinds of things a lot, in part because there is often a disconnect between what we as Christians show and what we tell between the kinds of things that we tell people they ought to do and the way that we live life. And I think in order for our witness to be powerful and our witness to be genuine, then there has to be a connection, there has to be a congruence between what we show and what we tell. And we've been talking about this for the last couple weeks. And so um, as we look into God's Word today, I, I want to share just a very simple, simple and straightforward, me- straightforward message that talks about... What Jesus says we ought to show and what Jesus says we ought to tell. And it's going to come from Mark chapter 1. Uh, we're going to read verses 14 and 15. Uh, so if you've been in church for a while, it might be a familiar passage. But Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, this is Mark's account of um, Jesus calling the first disciples. So we're just going to read uh, the first thing that Mark records Jesus Christ saying. Mark 1, 14 and 15. After John, this is the baptizer, was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. One more time, verse 15. The time has come, Jesus said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe. The good news. What is Jesus saying? We ought to show and what ought we tell here. There's a big blank in your bulletin for those of you who uh, take notes. There's going to be two points, but I I don't want to list them out as two points because um, we're not going to spend an even amount of time on on both of these. But what ought we show and what ought we tell? Here's what Jesus is saying. He says, uh, believe the good news. The kingdom of God is near. Uh, Repent and believe uh, that good news. So here's what he's saying. We ought to tell something. What is that? That a kingdom is announced. Yeah, this, is what we, this is what we tell. What ought we show? We ought to show that sin is renounced. Okay, Two things, very simple. A kingdom is announced and sin is renounced. So what does that mean? Let's uh, look into this because I, I think when we understand what Jesus is saying here, it will make a lot of sense. He, he talks about this coming, saying, um, proclaiming the good news of God. Here is the good news. The kingdom of God is near. Why in the world is that good news? I think when uh, a lot of us think about the message that we share with other people, we think about what the gospel is or what we think Christianity is, when we boil it down to its essence, I think a lot of times we have this understanding, maybe not in our minds, but the way that we live or the way that we show, we have this understanding that Christianity is about uh, things that we can and cannot do. And how do you define a good Christian? Maybe it's uh, someone who goes to church, someone who reads the Bible, someone who prays. What don't they do? They don't, I don't know. You can create your own list because different people have different things. They don't um, play the lottery, perhaps, or they don't do drugs, or they don't uh, drink alcohol. They don't have premarital sex, whatever it is that um, you think in your mind, that we think in our minds defines a good Christian. A lot of times we, we define it by the rules that we do and do not abide by or the things that we do and do not do. But if Jesus is saying, hey, look, when I came into this world, this first thing that Jesus announces when he begins his ministry, he says, here's the good news, the kingdom of God is near. That means I am the king and I am here. And this marks the defining moment of all of the world history. Life will never be the same because of me. And if before Jesus came, it was all about rules. And if after Jesus comes, it's all about rules. Then what point is there for Jesus to come? You get the drift here? If Christianity is all about what we can and cannot do, then we've missed something of the essence, and that doesn't become good news to us. You see, think about what Jesus did when his disciples began to make all these rules, right? They had their Old Testament, and then they said, well, Jesus, don't talk to Samaritan women, right? Men don't talk to Samaritan women because we're Jewish men. We don't do that. Or they created these other rules. They made all these other rules. Children, children, hey, don't come too close to Jesus. Don't come too close to him. When the crowds wanted to come, they said, oh, crowd, stay. Keep your distance. Don't crowd around Jesus. Or you remember this one? Don't waste expensive perfume on Jesus. Sell it and give it to the poor. What did, When the disciples began to make all of these rules, what did Jesus do? He broke all of them. He broke all of these rules. So obviously, Jesus did not come to give us more rules to live by. He's saying the kingdom of God is here. This is good news. This ought to bring about a, just a revolution in your life. And it's not a revolution of rules. What in the world is the good news that Jesus came to bring? Well, the kingdom of God is near. To us, we're like, well, I don't know how that is good news. Perhaps you feel that way, but to the Jewish mind, the Jewish mind, they understood completely why it was good news, because everything in their thinking was in the category of kingdoms and kings. In fact, they were longing for a king who would release them from bondage to slavery and oppression from the Roman Empire, right? So they're thinking in these categories of kingship, and they've been thinking about it for all of their lives, because not only are they waiting for a king, but their parents were waiting for a king, their grandparents were waiting for a king, their great-grandparents were waiting... They're in th- the lineage of Israelites were all waiting for a king. And it goes back because their theology begins of kingship and kingdom of God begins in Genesis. Now, some of you, I, I want to uh, explain this. Uh, if you've been in our adult Bible study, this may seem like a review to you, but um, I think it's important for us to get this again. So I'm not the most tech-savvy guy. I'm actually uh, afraid of, of using technology. But uh, to help us illustrate this, I'm going um, to... Uh, have some some slides up here that will help us to understand i think will help us to understand what we're talking about when it comes to the kingship and the kingdom of god goes all the way back to the beginning you remember in, in in genesis in genesis chapter one it says in the beginning god created heavens and the earth and it says in verse two of genesis chapter one the earth was formless and empty okay there was no form and there were no inhabitants and it says darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of god was hovering over the water so it says everything was dark Kind of like that, right? Okay, so everything is dark. And then in verse 3, it begins to talk about the creation. It talks about creation, and it says, And God said, It's dark in here, so let there be light. And there was light. Okay, and so it goes on. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. There was evening, there was morning, the first day. Okay, so the first day, this is what we see, that God does night and day right here. He goes on, second day, let there be an expanse. That basically means a wide open space between the waters to separate water from water. Just like that. Look at that. God made the expanse and separated the water under from the water above it. And it was so. God called the expanse sky. The thing that was wet was called the sea. It was good. There was evening and there was morning the second day. So then the third day, God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear. Okay? He realized that not everyone could swim. So we need some dry ground. And so he separated the sea from the land right? the wet stuff. He called sea, the dry stuff. He called ground, right? There was surf and there was turf the third day. And God looked at it and he said it was good. Okay. So the first three days we see what's going on here. Then comes day four. And this is where God gets really cool here. Verse 4, God said, let there be lights in the sky to separate the day from the night and let them serve as signs to mark seasons and days and years. Verse 16, God made two great lights. There's the first great light, right, for the sunbathers in Florida. And then he made two lesser lights. He made the moon. And because he knew that there were people who were romantic out there, he threw stars in the sky, okay? So this is what happened. It was good. There was morning and there was evening, the fourth day. We go on, the fifth day. God said, let the water teem with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the sky. So God created them. There's the bird and then the teeming of uh, the sea with fishes and an octopus and, and an enemy and all that other stuff. You know, it's there. And it was good. There was evening and there was morning the fifth day. Sixth day, God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, creatures that move along the ground. Can you see those? There's all kinds of cool animals there, uh, zebras and, and elephants and all this stuff. In verse 26, this is cool. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along. And for the first time ever, this is the actual Adam and Eve right there. Very good. Okay, so we've got this picture of creation. We'll we'll leave this up there for you to look at and admire. Um, we get to have this is this is kind of funny, but um, our our daughter Manny really likes looking at her own belly button. Like when she has to change clothes, she likes looking at her belly button. Someone said, I don't know if this is true, but it would make sense uh, that we would recognize Adam when we get to heaven because he would have no belly button because there was no umbilical cord. I don't know, um, but. I can't imagine when, when uh, Manny meets Adam and she tries to look at his belly button. She's like, what in the, who is this creature? But, <laughs> so it says six days of creation and it says the seventh day, God rested. So several things that we see here. Okay, several things that we see. One, God, after every day of creation said, this is good and it's good and it's good. And it's very good after all of this creation. It's kind of like you watch these skits, right? Uh, When you go on mission trips and there's always creation and God creates all these things and there's music and then after that, he just kind of looks at it and he smiles and and this is their way of saying this is very good. God enjoyed it. That's the first thing that we see. The second thing that we see is that somehow, somehow what we see in the second two columns, right, on the right, correspond with that first column on the other side, is this left, right, right, left. So these two columns somehow correspond with that thing on the first column, right? The question is how does this all happen? How does this all correspond? Throughout the, the, the book of Genesis, uh, throughout Genesis chapter one, in this creation account, there's constant language about governing and ruling. The sun and moon will govern the day and the night. That man will rule over and will govern over all of creation as the crown, as the pinnacle of creation, made in the image of God. It says in verse twenty six, God made him in his image. In verse twenty seven, and then he says, rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature. So. Here's one of the first acts of creation. I'm sorry, the first acts of ruling uh, that Adam and Eve did was they were to name all of the animals. So God brought these animals to him. And I remember hearing this one speaker. He was really funny. And he talked about what this looked like when God was naming all of these animals. So you see them up there. And he has this conversation. and, And I was like, Adam, I want you to name all these animals as I bring them one by one. And Adam gets really excited. He's like, I get to do that like forever and ever, this is what they'll be called. And he's like, yeah. And so he's really excited. So he brings this animal by and he's like laughing and he's giggling. He's like, that's so funny. I'm going to call that a hippopotamus. And, and, and it's like these great big names. And, and he brings another one by and he's like, oh my gosh, that, look at his, his thing is so long. I'm going to call him an elephant. And, and he's so happy. And, and they brought this one with a really long neck and he's laughing and having great old time. That's a giraffe. And, and then he comes and he brings this one with, with long arms. And he's like, uh, that's an orangutan. And and he brings another one that looks similar. He's like a chimpanzee. And and then he looked and he saw how long the line of animals were was. And he began getting tired. He's like, I'm gonna be here for a really long time. And so as hours went by, God began to bring these animals by, and instead of having these great long names, he said cat, <laughs> dog, <laughs> pig. <laughs> Bird, and then after that, he couldn't think of he couldn't think of anything else. So he said, "I'm just going to call them by what, the way they move." And so he saw a fly, and he said, "Fly." <laughs> but that's what he did. This is this is like the the language of creation is that you've got Adam made in the image of God ruling over everything. So what do we do when we put all these things together? Right. Some of you guys are more um, not picture oriented. So here's, here's another way to see it here in words. If you look at it this way, Genesis chapter one, verse, uh, verse two says before creation, it was formless and it was empty. There was no form and there was nothing to fill it. So what God does in the first three days is he creates the forms, Day and night, sky and sea, sea and land. And days four, five and six, he creates the things to fill these domains. You see this? The sun would fill the day, the moon and stars would fill the night. A better way to see it, a better way to see it is God created kingdoms in the first three days, and in the last three days, he created the kings who would rule over these kingdoms. So he says the sun will govern the day, the moon and stars will govern the night. The birds will rule over the sky and the fish will rule over the sea, the animals over the land. And then as the prize of all creation, man made in the image of God would rule over all of that stuff as the vice regent in this great kingdom. And at the very end of six days, God looks at it, says it's very good. And then on the seventh day, the true king rests on his throne. From Genesis chapter 1, the story of Scripture is that our God is building a kingdom and that he is the king. And he looks at this world as he's sitting on the throne. He says, it's very, very good. Now, the Israelites are hearing this as they read the book of Genesis in that generation that Moses was writing to, coming out of slavery. They're like, this world is not good. This world is not good. I don't know how you can say that, but this world is not good. The Israelites who are listening to Jesus in Mark chapter 1 say, I don't know about you, but this world is not good. Why? I think for all of the destruction that we see in this world, for all of the things that are wrong about the world, we understand that we are just as culpable as the next person. What are the things that we look at? We look at people being exploited. You saw Ashton Kutcher and Demi Moore come out with this new campaign to stop sex slavery. Why? Because these children are being exploited. We say, why is the world like this? Well, are we any different? Do we not exploit people like this all the time? Why are people so mean to one another? Why, why, why do people treat others this way? Have we not done the same? Have you not done the same to Rebecca Black? But I'm being honest here. And have you not trashed her in front of other people? Not realizing that this is someone made in the image of God. And we look at the problem as if it's all out there rather than seeing that it's all right here. See, the problem, the reason why the world is not good is not because God didn't make it good. He made it good. But when we chose to sin, we rebelled against God. And everything was thrown into chaos, disease and darkness and sickness. And at the end of it all, death. All of us are born into this world spiritually dead with a sentence over our lives. My uh, in-laws, Olivia's parents, have been in town for a couple weeks and um, it's been really good having them here. One of the things that my father-in-law loves to do is he loves to garden, which is cool because I don't like gardening that much. So after he got uh, acclimated to our home for uh, a little bit, uh, he began to go into the garage and get our tools and get our garden tools. He brought some down himself and he started going to work this was pretty cool so i'd go out to work and come to church or go to a coffee shop or something or meet somebody for uh, whatever it is in the morning I'd come back in the evening and i would look at what he'd done and be amazing so the first day he comes he starts pulling out all these weeds and and this like kind of like i i didn't notice it was that bad until he pulled out the weeds and i saw well this is pretty good and so i came home that evening and i saw that he had pulled out the weeds and so the first day i looked and i saw that it was good Second day comes, and not only did he do that, but there were some trees that were really ugly, and he cut them down, he chopped them down, and I went out in the morning, I came back in the evening, and I looked the second day, and I saw that it was good. The third day, there was this mulch that was kind of, I mean, I thought it was pretty cool, but he completely took out all the mulch, and he started putting in these beautiful stones and rocks. And I came, went in the morning, I came back in the evening, I looked, and I saw that, man, this is good. The fourth day, it gets better and better. Not only was he taking these things out, but I went and looked in the backyard one day, and I saw that he had planted an orange tree right in the middle of our backyard. I was like, wow, one day this is going to sprout oranges, and we're going to pick it and eat it and make orange juice and all this stuff. And I looked in the fourth day, and I saw that it was very good. The next day, I went out in the morning. I came back in the afternoon, and I was just kind of hanging out, and I saw, wow, he had planted these blueberry trees in the side of the yard. And I looked, and I one day, these are going to be teeming with blueberries. We're going to eat of it and enjoy the fruit of his labor. And I saw that it was good the fifth day. And then the sixth day comes. This is Friday. Friday. Get the theme? This is Friday. I went out in the morning. I came back in the evening. And he had, he had planted these beautiful flowers, purple flowers, yellow flowers. And it was like amazing and I thought, wow, this is beautiful. And it was good the sixth day, morning and evening. And so, came home Friday. One um, of the house churches was meeting at our place, and so Manny and I were just kind of sitting. He had actually um, not created, but he had bought a uh, a gliding porch uh, chair for the porch. And so I'm sitting on it with Manny. trying to feed her her dinner and stuff. And so Manny's kind of playing around, romping around. It's a beautiful day, amazing weather that day. So she's kind of walking around and, and playing and laughing and falling down and tripping and stuff. And so I am trying to watch her for a little bit. And then after a while, I just kind of sit and I'm, I'm enjoying, uh, enjoying the day and enjoying the weather. And then I see Manny comes and she uh, says to me, Daddy, Daddy in Korean. She says, Appa, Appa. And she comes with a present in her hand. And she had plucked out of the ground this beautiful yellow flower that grandfather had planted. And she came to present it to me. And she's like, Daddy, Daddy. And the first thing I said was not, oh, how beautiful, Manny. It was shock. I was like, Manny, oh no. And all of a sudden, her excitement turned to anguish. She realized that she had done something wrong. And so she turned away from me and she went and went down the two stairs to where that plant was. And she tried to put it back onto the stem. And I said, well, that's pretty cute, but it's too late because the damage has been done. I think that's kind of a picture of what happened in our world when God created this world and saw that it was good. And we chose to rebel against the beautiful things that he had done. And then we try and fix these things by, by trying to do all of these things ourselves, but we realize that we can't. That we don't need to, well, we can't try and take the things that we've done wrong and all the brokenness and all the damage and all the, the things that are messed up and, and try and fix it ourselves. We look at our broken lives and, and we try and deal with it and, try and, and and use all these self-help mechanisms and all of these other avenues in, in order to try and make these things well, but the damage has already been done. The only one that can fix it is the one who started all of this in the first place. And so, an aside, Grandpa came and he planted a new tree and and made it better. But in the midst of all this, Jesus says, this is why I came. says, the kingdom of God is near. What does that mean? If the kingdom of God is near, it means that the king has come. What in the world did it mean that the king has come? This third phase, there was creation, there was rebellion, and here he comes to bring redemption. I want to read what what John Calvin wrote. Calvin is a a famous theologian, and in the preface to his French, um, the, the French Bible, this is what he wrote. This is amazing. He says, All good which could be thought of or desired is to be found in Jesus Christ alone, for he was humbled to exalt us. He became a slave to free us. He became poor to enrich us. He was sold to redeem us, made captive for our deliverance, condemned for our absolution. He was made a curse for our blessings An offering for sin for our righteousness. He was marred that we might be restored. He died for our life. So that by him, this is the result. So that by him, harshness is softened, anger appeased, darkness made light, injustice justified, weakness made strong, dejection consoled, sin prevented, scorn despised, fear made sure, debts canceled, toil made light, sadness rejoiced, misfortune made blessed, difficulty eased, disorder ordered, division united, rebellion quelled, threats threatened, ambushes uncovered, assaults assailed, effort Weakened, combat, combated, war, warred against, vengeance, avenged, torment, tormented, damnation, damned, ruined, ruined, hell, held, prisoner, death, destroyed, and mortality made immortal. This is what Jesus Christ came to do. The final act of history is that God is going to come, that Jesus is going to come again, and he's going to restore everything that was broken See, the message of hope, the message of good news that Jesus came to bring is that I am coming to restore this kingdom, but in this meantime, I have come to make everything that is wrong right in your life. That this is why he came. He came to fix our broken lives. That no sin is too great for him to overcome. That no addiction is too strong for him to break. That no injustice is too great that he cannot make right. Right? He's saying, this is the good news. And if you don't believe it, then you don't understand the presence of the king. Because when the king comes, when the king comes and he sits on the throne, then he makes all things good, even in our lives. And this is why he came. The gospel is not about what you can and cannot do. That's not what it's about. Think saying, there's good news that a kingdom has come. That your misguided passions can be reordered in a proper way. That everything about your past can be forgiven. And that a new day is dawning. That you don't have to live the way that you've been living. That no matter how deep your guilt goes, that his grace covers that even more deeply. That no matter how shameful your life is and how stained you've been, he can wash you whiter than snow. Saying, this is the gospel of Christ. It's a message that a kingdom is announced and that the king Has come and he wants to rule and reign over your life and over this world. And so, what do we tell? We tell that the kingdom has come, that a kingdom is announced. And what do we show? And again, I I don't want you to think that oh my gosh, you spent 20 minutes on the first point. This point, the next point is going to be longer. It's not. What do we? What do we show? If we say that a kingdom is announced, we show that sin is renounced. What does that mean? He says in verse 15, repent and believe the good news. Get this, repent and believe. Repentance, I mean, it basically means that we need to lay down our arms of rebellion. C.S. Lewis said that. He's like, you know, sinful humanity is not just a person in need of a renovation, sinful humanity is a rebel who needs to lay down his arms. To lay down our arms of self-sufficiency, to lay down our arms of rebellion against God, to lay down our arms and say we can do it better than you can, because something is enthroned in our hearts if not Jesus. And for the great majority, actually for everyone who, in whom Christ does not reign, sin is ruling in our hearts. And so when he says repent, we're saying that we replace sin with Christ as the ruler of our lives. On the throne of our hearts that sin becomes renounced. This is what it means to repent. And then he says, believe the good news. To believe the good news that Jesus Christ, when he's enthroned as king, makes all of our lives good. And we look at our broken lives, we realize that Christ probably is not king over our hearts. Do we believe that if we were to relinquish the throne of our hearts, that Jesus Christ would come and make good out of the chaos of our lives? That he would make right beauty out of the ugliness of our lives. That he would do something wonderful out of the ashes of our lives. That he would bring life out of death. Do we really believe that? This is what it means to repent and believe. Because it's not saying it's a one-time thing. It is a continual thing that goes on throughout the Christian life. This is Martin Luther when he nailed the 95 Theses to the door of the gates of Wittenberg. The first thing that he said was that the life of a Christian is a life of continual repentance and believing. Repentance and faith is not just how we get into the kingdom of God, it's how we grow in the kingdom of God. And every failure to grow in our love for Jesus Christ, our failure to grow in our maturity in Jesus Christ, is because we have not repented of our rebellion against God in this moment, and we have not believed that Jesus Christ is enough to satisfy us. Repentance and believing is not just how you get into the kingdom of God. This is how we grow in holiness repenting of our rebellion, and believing that Jesus Christ can be king and make good out of our broken lives. So he says, repent and believe the good news. Because you see, it's only good news for those who are on his team. Last night, people in Atlanta, sad to say, were rejoicing. Why? Because of the good news that they had overthrown the Orlando Magic. And for people in our city, this was not good news. But if we were to transfer our allegiance to the bad guys, then it might become good news. If we don't repent and believe the good news that Jesus Christ the King has come to usher in his kingdom, then what happens? The Bible makes clear and I don't want to mince words here. The Bible makes clear that the wages of sin is death. There's been talk these days that there is no hell popularized by this one author because at the end of it all, he says, love wins. In Eastern Europe where morality is loose, I remember hearing of a guy who went into the streets of uh, of one of these Eastern European countries, and in the street this man was peddling uh, things that are discongruent with the life of Christ. Selling pornography, selling children. And so he asked this man, he said, would you like one? He said, no, I can't. I don't do this because I follow. I'm a Christian. And the guy who was selling this stuff said, yeah, me too. God loves me. And this guy looked at him and he said, no. You're an enemy of God. And if you don't repent, you're going to hell. I think it's something that we don't want to talk about because it's not politically correct. But at the end of the day, this is what Jesus says. This is what the Word of God says. This is what His Scripture says. That unless we repent and believe in Jesus Christ for the salvation of our souls and the redemption of the world, then our only other option is hell. Because contrary to what Rob Bell says, it's not just that love wins. Because if love wins, it's at the exclusion of everything else. You see, at the cross of Jesus Christ, love won, yeah, won. But so did every other attribute of God. Love does not win at the exclusion of his holiness. Love does not win at the exclusion of his goodness. Love does not win at the exclusion of his justice if there was no hell then God would not be just. You all know this. If someone were to rape and kill someone that you loved and you said, go off scot-free, you come into my family and be part of it, and there was no penalty, no punishment, then how much would that honor the one who uh, who was dishonored? How much would that honor their life? How much more so when the eternal and holy God has been offended and has made it possible for us to be brought into his family? See, at the cross, justice wins, Holiness wins, mercy wins, grace wins, love wins. At the cross, every single attribute of God wins. And he combines it all when all of these things kiss at the cross of Christ. We can't simply say love wins, my friends, because that's not what the Bible says. It might be palatable to other people, but that's not the gospel. That's not good news. The good news is that Christ came, he lived, he died for your sins and for mine, and he offers up this hope. He says, lay down your arms of rebellion. Take up the terms of amnesty. Be forgiven, be pardoned, and swear your allegiance to a new king who makes all things good. Repent and believe. Show and tell other people to do the
1: same. Let's pray. Let's
0: take a moment to pray. You know, my friends, I think some of us have to understand that we are born as rebels into this world, rebels against God. And if we don't lay down our arms of rebellion, then judgment is coming. I wish that it wasn't that way, but I know that it is. Maybe for some of you in here, you have not made this decision to trust Jesus Christ. To be the pardoner of all of your iniquities and wrongs. And then to be the king over your life. His promise is not only that he will forgive you, but that he will make all that is broken in time right. It doesn't mean that right away everything's going to be good. Because it's not. In fact, there's a, there's a cross that we bear to follow Jesus. But he does say that if you would choose me and you would follow me, then I have life eternal that begins now and it will just revolutionize everything about who you are and how you live. Joy, peace, love can be yours. Forgiveness, freedom can be yours. If you would believe, acknowledge that you have rebelled against God, and say, Jesus, I want to believe in you. I want to pledge my allegiance to you. If that's you. I just want to invite you to pray that prayer. Just say, Just say it in those words. God, I've blown it against you. I've hated on you. But God, I want to be forgiven. And maybe at the end of our time here, if you would talk with me or talk with anybody who you feel is walking the way, we'd love to share and pray together with you. Maybe others of us in here, you have been walking with Jesus, but you have since realized that Christ has not been king. To all of us, the message is the same. Repent and believe the good news. Lay down our arms of rebellion against the king who is Jesus and believe that when he is our king, that he will bring the lasting joy in our lives. Let's take a minute or two right now to come before the Lord in prayer. Ask God that he would help us. Let's ask God and, and just drink of his grace, of his mercy. Of his love this afternoon. Okay, so let's pray together for a couple moments.
1: Lord, we need you. Father, we pray for those in here who need to respond to this message, who need to respond for the first time in repentance and belief. God, I pray that you would help us with to understand the hope that you offer, to understand the freedom and the forgiveness that you give to your people, that you administer, and that you just begin to be and work in the heart of your own that redemption is here, Lord God, and that a new life is available to those who believe in you, Jesus. So, Father, let your spirit come, let your glory fall, lead us and guide us and make us more like you. God, that you would help us to repent of our rebellious actions and our rebellious attitudes and our rebellious allegiances, and you would help us to believe that Jesus, you are dead.
0: Our great and awesome God, we come as a people who look at our world and even more close to home, we look at our lives and we realize that there's a lot of damage that sin has done. We look at our lives and it's not just the things that we've done, but we look at what people have done to us. And some of those things are so awful that they would be criminal. And we've gone through our lives thinking that this is just the way that it is, and I'm resigned to this kind of a fate. But you tell us that there's hope. But you tell us that you came to fix our broken lives. Tell us that you came to heal the hurts within. You came to make us new. You didn't just glue a a flower onto the stem, but you came to uproot all that was evil and to give us all that is good. Help us to believe it. We look at our lives and we look at all the pain we've inflicted on our own lives. We look at all the pain we've inflicted on other people. And we say, God, we have hurt the image of God in others. We've hurt other people. We wonder what can be done for a rebellious heart like these. We thank you that your grace is big enough and overwhelming to cover over all of these things. And like an ocean, it washes over us and redeems and renews and heals and makes us new in you. Help us to believe it. For those who, right now, if we were to die, would be judged on the basis of our sins, pray that you would convict our hearts and help us to realize that if we put our faith in Jesus Christ, that we won't be judged on the basis of our sins, but we'll be based, judged based on the perfect, perfect life of Jesus Christ, who lived the life that we failed to live and then who died the rebel's death, that we should have died. And he gives us a great exchange, his perfection for our, for our rebellion and our sin. And he says, believe it, it can be yours. To those who are like that, may we receive this life today. And for all of us, may we live a lifestyle of repentance and faith, to repent and believe the good news. We thank you. Thank you so much. We love you and we pray these things in Christ's name.